You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What's something you learned in history class that you feel like wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told, one episode at a time. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 249, St. Louis. In our last episode, we covered the fall of Charleston, South Carolina, which began the Southern Campaign that would occupy most of the fighting for the rest of the war. It's important, however, to remember that fighting remained a constant danger all over the continent, even in other parts of the world. Once Britain was battling France and Spain, colonies and territories of all combatant countries were up for grabs whenever the opportunity presented itself. The war also presented an opportunity for Americans to push westward once again. Under the King, the Proclamation of 1763 prevented colonists from moving west of the Appalachian Mountains. Not only would pioneers have to contend with angry Indian tribes who objected to the encroachments on their land, London could opt to send regulars to clear out illegal squatters on western lands. I recall that back in episode 102, I discussed the efforts by colonists to establish claims in what would later become Tennessee. In 1772, the Watauga Association had negotiated a 10-year lease with the Cherokee, and in 1775 made an outright purchase of the land in what became known as the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals. Now, many of the Cherokee chiefs refused to recognize that treaty and argued that the other chiefs who did sign it had no authority to sell this land. British officials in London also did not recognize the legality of this purchase and still required colonists to remain east of the mountains. But since the purchase took place about a month before the Battle of Lexington, British attention was focused elsewhere. The British did encourage Cherokee attacks led by Chief Dragging Canoe. The colonists defeated the Cherokee, who were forced to accept the sale of lands from the Treaty of Sycamore Shoals in another treaty in 1777. A group of North Carolinians under the leadership of James Robertson traveled into what is today central Tennessee and established Fort Nashboro along the Cumberland River. It was named after Francis Nash, the Continental General from North Carolina, who had just been killed at the Battle of Germantown. Robertson had lived in western North Carolina and he had made earlier trips over the Appalachians to explore the region. In 1769, he made one such trip with another explorer by the name of Daniel Boone. Robertson also was not necessarily the biggest fan of the North Carolina government, at least in the colonial government, having fought at the Battle of Alamance in 1771. It was after Alamance that Robertson moved his first group of families over the mountains, with the hope of settling outside the reach of that colonial government. In 1779, 
after North Carolina had its independent patriot government, Robertson briefly took a post as the state's agent with the Cherokee, but quickly resigned that post. He remained wary of any eastern interests that might impact his ability to settle an inland community west of the mountains. With other like-minded men, Robertson formed the Wataga Association as a somewhat informal governing body. These early settlers, along with others who had violated the British prohibition on settling west of the mountains, later became known as the Overmountain Men. Robertson's community at Fort Nashboro was one of several tiny outposts in the region, still surrounded by Cherokee, many of whom were still hostile to the colonists' presence. In May of 1780, these families agreed to the Cumberland Compact. Signed by 256 colonists, the compact established a governing council of 12 judges, elected by freemen aged 21 and older. It allowed voters the right to remove judges at any time. It also paid the judges and a few other officials in animal skins. The primary purpose of the compact was to establish a system of defense. All males 16 and older were obliged to be members of the militia. Crimes that could involve the death penalty would require the accused to be transferred to the East, where he could be judged by the North Carolina courts. So, the Cumberland Compact created a relatively simple government, but that government remained in place until Tennessee became an independent state many years later. The British Army never sent any regulars into the region during the war, but many of the militia would later march east and participate in the Battle of King's Mountain, which we will get to in a future episode. Of greater interest to the British at this time, though, was control of the Mississippi River. In earlier episodes, I noted that land west of the Mississippi was under the control of Spain. France had turned over this territory to Spain at the end of the Seven Years' War. Although Spain had nominally taken control of the Louisiana Territory in 1763, St. Louis was founded within that territory by French settlers from Canada and named in honor of the former King of France. Although Louis XV was king at the time, the city was actually named after King Louis IX, who had led France during the Crusades and who had actually been declared a saint in the Catholic Church. Much like the American settlers in Tennessee, the French settlers at St. Louis were mostly left to fend for themselves. They established their own government and ran an area under French legal traditions. Spanish officials did not even bother to arrive in the city until 1770. Even after they did, the town mostly spoke French and retained much of its French culture, giving only a nominal nod to Spanish rule. The Spanish sent Don Pedro Piernas to become the lieutenant governor of Upper Louisiana. Piernas established residency at St. Louis with a small garrison of Spanish soldiers. In 1775, Piernas was replaced by Francisco Cruzat, another Spanish officer, and he in turn was replaced by Fernando de Leyva in 1778. Governor de Leyva was aware of fighting between the British and American forces on the other side of the river, and he wanted to be prepared for the war to spill over into Spanish territory. So, almost immediately after his arrival, he began to build up defenses at St. Louis in a spot called Fort San Carlos, named in honor of King Carlos III of Spain. The plans for the fort included four large stone towers 
and a large trench around the entire village perimeter. Although Spain declared war on Britain in June 1779, the Leyva did not receive word of this until February of 1780, only a few months before the attack began. He realized at that point that St. Louis would not have time to build the entire stone fort that he wanted. He only had one of the towers ready, and he began to put up log walls for the remainder of the defense. He also had five cannons at various points to discourage any direct land attack. Now, several weeks before the attack, DeLeba received intelligence that a raid was coming soon, but he never got detailed information about exactly when it would strike or how large a force he would face. In the early years of the war, both the Americans and British did all they could to respect Spanish authority along the river. Neither side wanted to push neutral Spain into joining the enemy. But with Spain's entry into the war in 1779, that drastically changed British attitudes towards Spanish possessions. Britain saw Spain's entry as an opportunity to capture more Spanish possessions. Britain hoped to take control of the Mississippi River, although since Spain controlled the mouth of the river at New Orleans, the British never really devoted much resources to this goal. Now, up until this time, British efforts along the Mississippi had not gone very well. Now, recall back in episode 210, I talked about British Lieutenant Governor Henry Hamilton's efforts to secure the region for Britain from his base in Detroit. Hamilton had contended with Virginians under the command of George Rogers Clark during the winter of 1778-79 and had ended up being taken prisoner that spring. Following Hamilton's capture, another British Lieutenant Governor, Patrick Sinclair of Michilmackinac, assumed responsibility for retaking the region. Sinclair was also an experienced military officer, having served under General Amherst in America during the French and Indian War. He remained in Canada after the war, gaining experience as a young officer, mostly exploring wilderness areas around the Great Lakes. As we all know, though, peacetime was not a great time for military advancement. At age 36, Sinclair retired from service as a captain in 1772. His career took on a new chapter three years later, when in 1775 he was appointed lieutenant governor and superintendent of Michilmackinac, which was then part of the Quebec Territory. He attempted to travel to Canada soon after his appointment, but after several failed voyages left him still in England in 1778, he finally managed to make it to Halifax, but then took another year getting to Quebec. He did not present his credentials to Governor Friedrich Haldimand until late 1779, over four years after receiving his commission. He then spent the next couple of years relocating a poorly positioned fort onto Mackinac Island. As a civilian officer, Sinclair was not in command of military forces in the area. That fell to Major Errant Schuyler de Paster, who outranked Captain Sinclair in the British military. The Pacer was soon transferred to Detroit, giving Sinclair military authority over the small garrison. Following Spain's entry into the war, London dispatched orders to the British leadership in Canada from Secretary of State Lord Germain. The instructions called on local leaders to plan and execute attacks on Spanish possessions. Sinclair focused his sights on St. Louis. 
Sinclair only had command of a tiny garrison at Michilmackinac, and he was not going to get any reinforcements. An attack by regulars was out of the question. Instead, any attack would consist of local volunteers supplemented by native warriors. Sinclair offered local fur traders opportunities to control the fur trade along the territory as an incentive to participate in the campaign. Native warriors were always up for the opportunity for plunder and also received generous gifts from Sinclair to encourage their participation. Command of this local military force was given to a man named Emmanuel Hess, an experienced fur trader who had good relations with the native tribes and also had some experience as a militia captain. There seems to be little in the way of exact numbers or written records for this campaign, but it appears that Hess was joined by about two dozen other fur traders, lured by opportunities to control the fur trade in the captured territories. The bulk of the fighting force, though, would be native warriors. About 200 Sioux, a.k.a. Dakota warriors, commanded by a war chief named Wapasha, made up the largest single contingent. The Sioux, however, were not really established British allies. They had been staunch allies of the French for many years and had been rather standoffish once the British took control of Canada. It's not clear exactly why they joined this campaign, but it likely had more to do with the relationships they had with the French-speaking fur traders who recruited them. Warriors from quite a few other tribes also joined the campaign. Warriors from the Chippewa, Menominee, Winnebago, Sac, and Fox nations all participated. Because the British did not entirely trust the Sioux, their chief, Wapasha, had to cede overall command of the Indian force to Machakuas, a Chippewa chief. The Sioux and the Chippewa were traditional enemies, but the two chiefs managed to establish an understanding during the course of this campaign that allowed the warriors to remain on relatively good terms. In total, there were probably around a thousand native warriors from at least ten different tribes who all joined together for this one campaign. The mostly native force marched over three weeks before reaching the vicinity around St. Louis. Captain Hess sent out scouts to get a look at the Spanish defenses, but they could not really get close enough. He wanted to maintain the element of surprise, and there were too many farmers in the area for the group to get close enough to the village undetected. On May 26th, Captain Hess deployed his warriors. He opted to divide his warriors in order to attack the American-controlled town of Cahokia on the eastern bank of the Mississippi, as well as St. Louis on the western bank. Cahokia was under the command of George Rogers Clark. Despite wanting the element of surprise, the attackers launched their raid around midday. The Spanish defenders fired a warning shot from their stone tower to let them know they had been spotted. The Sioux and Winnebago warriors led the attack, backed up by the Sac and Fox warriors. The French fur traders, including Captain Hess, made up the rear. The battle raged over several hours. The Spanish defenders were well outnumbered, with only about 200 to 300 men to defend the village, and most of them were inexperienced militia. The attacking warriors attempted to draw out the Spanish defenders into open combat. Their attempts included executing some captives in front of the enemy. The natives hoped that the defenders would rush to the aid of their friends and family, 
so that they could be attacked by the warriors in an open field. Some of the defending militia asked to make just such a sortie and rescue the captives, but Deleba refused, knowing that it was a trap. The defenders remained behind their defenses, and they used their cannons pretty effectively to discourage a frontal attack by the enemy. The Spanish commander later reported that the defenders took about a hundred casualties, a pretty high number, the majority of whom were captured as prisoners by the attacking force. At the same time, Hess launched his raid on St. Louis. One of his other associates, Jean-Marie Ducharme, launched their raid against Cahokia with the force of about 300 warriors. Cahokia did not have any cannons, but had set up defensive barriers in anticipation for an attack. Clark had actually just traveled to St. Louis to coordinate with Spanish authorities over a defense strategy and lobby for a joint offensive against the British. Clark and his officers rushed back to Cahokia after receiving word that the enemy was close. They arrived shortly before the attack began. The defenders at Cahokia stood their ground behind defensive barricades. Clark's arrival with reinforcements shortly before the attack began discouraged the attackers from an all-out assault. Clark's combined force was about 400 men, meaning they outnumbered the attackers. The attack did not last very long. Clark reported the loss of only one Virginia officer, three soldiers, and five of his men taken prisoner. The attack apparently was poorly organized and quickly repulsed, and the attackers gave up and began the retreat north. The warriors who attacked Cahokia soon met up with the retreating warriors from St. Louis. Having failed to take either town, they moved back towards British lines to the north in a rather scattered and disorganized movement. Along the way, these native raiders sacked all the farms and isolated homes they came across, mostly murdering the inhabitants. According to some stories, those captured were even burned alive. The warriors stole what they could and burned whatever they could not carry with them. A few weeks after the attack, Clark organized an offensive raid with about 350 men, mostly Virginians. They attacked Indian villages at Rock River and Prairie du Chien, burning crops, homes, and paying back the same sort of devastation that the warrior force had inflicted on their people. The Spanish, who had relied almost entirely on local militia for defense, opted to remain in St. Louis and did not really conduct any military raids, at least by land. The Spanish did, however, later send gunboats up the Mississippi, raiding villages of natives who were friendly with the British, and there they seized furs and other valuable supplies from the enemy. The Sac tribe, which really lived within the Spanish sphere of influence, tried to make up for their participation in the raid. In June, they sent a delegation to St. Louis, bringing six prisoners, three French-speaking militia, and three slaves. The Fox would also soon try to repair their relationship with Spanish authorities. Other tribes, particularly the Sioux, remain in active warfare against the Spanish. Because of the continued hostilities, Deleva sent letters to Governor de Galvez at New Orleans stating that unless the Spanish could complete a defensible fort at St. Louis and with a garrison of at least 200 Spanish regulars, they might have to abandon the region as too dangerous. Now, this threat was probably more of an attempt to get the military support he wanted 
there's no evidence that Deleba was really considering leaving the region. But we don't know if Deleba would have made good on this threat to withdraw because he died in late June, only a few days after writing this letter. The king had sent congratulations for his defense of St. Louis and granted him a promotion to lieutenant colonel, but those honors did not arrive until after his death. His successor, Lieutenant Governor Cartabona, took a very different tact, blaming much of the losses on Deleva's inability to build proper defenses quickly enough. This was during a period of relative panic, since the Spanish defenders had pretty much used up all their available ammunition and were receiving reports that the Sioux might launch an even larger raid on the city very soon. Now, back in New Orleans, Governor Galvez was too busy with his own campaign against West Florida to provide much of anything to St. Louis. He did, however, send Francisco Cruzat back to take command of St. Louis once again. Remember that Cruzat had been Deleba's predecessor in command of the region. He would take command by September. Fortunately, none of the rumors of a second major Indian attack proved true before his arrival. Cruzat focused on trying to secure alliances with the local tribes to ensure they would not join another attempted raid on the region and perhaps might be part of any Spanish defense should the British instigate another raid from northern tribes. He also continued the construction of a better fort at St. Louis. Now, despite receiving continued rumors that the British might encourage another Indian attack, St. Louis would never again face a large-scale attack on the city. Next week, the British under John Johnson and the Mohawk under Joseph Brandt renew their attacks on the Mohawk Valley in upstate New York. Podcasters like Mike never know who will be inspired by their message. I'm Tracy Lawson, an author and historian. I once heard a podcaster comment, we rarely see history from a woman's point of view, and decided, hey, I'm a writer, I should do something about that. So I did. My novel, Answering Liberty's Call, Anna Stone's Daring Ride to Valley Forge, is based on a true story about my sixth great-grandmother and has been called a grand and rollicking revolutionary adventure. While on a solo horseback journey to Valley Forge with supplies for her soldier husband, Anna takes on the responsibility of delivering an urgent message to General Washington. But it's not long before a mysterious man is hot on her trail and trying to steal the letter. Can Anna outwit him and make it safely to the picket line? A version of Anna's story for elementary school kids called Revolutionary Anna is the first book in my Liberty Bells series for young readers. Liberty Bells books feature female patriots who advanced the cause of liberty, and they're a great way to get kids hyped up about America 250, which is just around the corner. My books are available in print and ebook on Amazon. For listeners of the American Revolution podcast, I'm offering 15% off personalized signed copies of books ordered through my website, tracylawsonbooks.com. That's T-R-A-C-Y-L-A-W-S-O-N books.com. Use the promo code AMREVPODCAST. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Kurt Avard and Knox Press. Go to knoxpress.com for lots of great books, not just on the Revolution, but 
all aspects of American history, and more. Thanks also to Conrad Welling for a one-time gift. Everyone who helps support this show however they can is greatly appreciated. It makes a big help in me covering my expenses. I also wanted to mention that my next appearance will be at History Camp Boston on August 13th. I will be appearing on a panel to discuss new media in history, as well as enjoying the many other great sessions from the audience. If you can make it to Boston that weekend, August 13th, for History Camp, I'd love to see you there. History Camp is sponsored by The History List, which sells lots of great history-related products. Go to thehistorylist.org, and if you use coupon code AMREV2022 for a discount on your first purchase. If you need that link again or the coupon code, just go to my website, amrevpodcast.com, and scroll all the way to the bottom of the page. Now, this week I discussed two separate events from May 1780 that happened in the West. One was the establishment of a rudimentary government that governed what later became Tennessee until it became a state. I mentioned the establishment of a town named Nashborough. You may have already guessed that that town later changed its name to the well-known Nashville, Tennessee. And it's still named after the fallen Revolutionary War general, Francis Nash. The raid on St. Louis was one of those conflicts that is also largely ignored. It was mostly Indians along with a few French-speaking trappers fighting for the British. Spain had only a few dozen soldiers at St. Louis, and almost all the defenders were also French-speaking trappers who probably more opposed Britain than supported Spain. On the other side of the river, there were not really any Continental soldiers. I believe they were all Virginia soldiers, led by George Rogers Clark, who fended off that attack as well. If that attack had succeeded, because there was so little non-Indian population in this region, it might have given the British a claim to the whole upper Mississippi Valley and encouraged them to hold on to what became the Northwest Territory as well. So the outcome of this fight had pretty important implications. Although the defenders at St. Louis took only about 100 casualties, that was really a pretty brutal loss for a town that probably had only a total population of around 700. Their defense ensured that Spain would hold the territory at the end of the war. Now, Spain, of course, turned over that region to France, hoping to use France as a buffer between more populous Spanish territories to the west and the Americans to the east, who kept pushing westward all the time. Now, one of the conditions when Spain transferred the territory to France was that it not turn that territory over to the Americans. Of course, France just ignored that requirement and sold the Louisiana Purchase to the U.S. a few years later. As a result, the Americans kept pushing west, eventually into what had been New Spain, but by that time had become the independent nation of Mexico. Fort San Carlos, the stone fort that had been built at St. Louis for this attack, disappeared after the war. The location where it once sat is in downtown St. Louis, near the baseball stadium, but there's really not much to see there anymore. As you can guess, there's not very many books that really focus on this topic. One of the few that I did find is called The American Revolutionary War in the West, which is actually a series of smaller articles from various people and edited by Stephen Kling. It covers not just the raids that I discussed today, 
but the whole Spanish presence in the region during the war, and it also looks more into the native tribes that were active in this region at this time. Now, normally I provide an Amazon link where you can buy the book. I link to Amazon out of habit, not because I have any particular love for the company, but because they always seem to have the book, no matter how out of print or obscure. I haven't found another source that is nearly as complete. Well, this week, Amazon let me down. The American Revolutionary War in the West simply shows up as unavailable. Now, that gives me an excuse to link to another source, the Fort Plain Museum Bookstore. I've been to Fort Plain a couple of times for their annual American Revolution Conference. I have to say their bookstore is one of the most comprehensive that I've ever seen focused on the Revolutionary War era. They do a great mail order business from their website, and proceeds from these sales help support the Fort Plain Museum, which is at present trying to build a replica of the Revolutionary War fort that once stood there. So, buying this book, or other books from their site, also helps support a great cause, which is not Jeff Bezos' spaceship. So if you want to get the American Revolutionary War in the West, or check out their other great online selection, go to fortplainmuseum.org or use the link that I left on my blog. My online recommendation this week is once again from the Journal of the American Revolution, which is a wonderful and free online resource for so many articles about the era. Jimmy Dick wrote an article called the Battle of St. Louis for the journal in 2014. It's a great summary of events, a little more detailed than the information I gave, and a good read. If you go to allthingsliberty.com and search for St. Louis, you'll find the article, or you can just use the direct link on my website or blog. My question this week asks, were George Washington and his militia considered violent domestic terrorists in their time? Well, the word terrorist did not exist during George Washington's lifetime, so the easy answer to this question is no. Also, the only time George Washington directly commanded militia in the field was before and during the French and Indian War. During that time, he was operating under the direct orders of the Royal Governor of Virginia or regular British officers. So if anyone thought ill of him for any reason, it was probably only the French. When Washington took command of the Continental Army in 1775, he was taking command of a new regular army, not militia. Many militia units fought with the Continental soldiers over the course of the war, but they were not his militia. They operated under the authority of the state officials. Now, of course, the army engaged in violence, as that is basically the purpose of any army. Today, we generally distinguish terrorists from military rebels based on the size and organization of the force. And people have all sorts of definitions of the word terrorist today, and I suppose some of those definitions would apply to an entire army. But generally, we think of terrorists as a relatively small group, using violence but not attempting to claim sovereignty. We also generally apply the epithet of terrorist to groups that attack civilian targets for the purpose of raising the level of terror, this, they hope, will get the population to submit to their political or other goals. Washington, of course, tried to win the hearts and minds of civilians and was focused on military targets. As I said, the word terrorist did not exist at the time, 
those supporting the king's authority over America would likely have used other derogatory terms to refer to Washington and his army, probably rebels, insurrectionists, or traitors. Rebel is the term that I see most commonly used by British authorities. If you have a question you would like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, or Quora. Well, that's all for this time. I hope you will join me again next time for another American Revolution podcast. <laughs>